Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, That's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Joshua, whenever you're ready to start this thing. Just start it. Let's get right. going. Yeah. Well, well, Let's welcome get into to, it. Welcome to the Adulting Well podcast. We're going to do this differently. I'm mm-hmm. your co-host kevin and i'm joined as always by oh your co-host josh that's right i used to start that i actually yeah. totally forgot now we're and, switching. Uh, but now i throw it back to you yes to our intro right okay yeah and i'm really um we're welcoming back ac thompson mm-hmm. to the show because the last time we talked before we started this we were just discussing that there was trump was still president there had been no covid no insurrection and we have not discussed the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer. So a lot has happened. And AC has been an incredibly busy man as well, including putting out a new, a couple of new frontline documentaries since that time, but specifically American Insurrection, which we're going to talk about, um, and a bunch of other you know, articles tracking some of the Boogaloo Boys and kind of where they sit within certain kind of realms of power as well. So um, you know, let's, uh, let's jump right in and say, welcome AC to the show. Thank you for joining us. I know you're, you're busy right now and in and out of town, but welcome. Hey, thank you for having me back. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do we want to get into the, uh, the documentary and the, what happened on January 6th? Because we'd love to know where you were when you found out and then kind of what the resulting, work was that you did because it was it was heavy duty i've watched or even it. like the couple days leading up because we were all so tense right we all were like is yeah. something gonna happen is this gonna be okay right you know so for us like we were following a few different far-right activists and um the people we were following made the decision not to go and so the main core of our team didn't didn't go on January 6th. And obviously that was a mistake. 
But you um, knew something was going on or some people were going? Yeah, yeah, we did. And like we because it was like the people that we were um really sort of um exploring their their politics and their activism um and what their intentions were, they were like, we're not going because for, for various reasons. So we decided not to go. And there was some, you know, d- dispute about that within our within our core team of reporters and filmmakers. But one of our producers, Ford Fisher, did go. And he was, by the way, he was saying the whole time, like, you guys are dummies, <laughs> you're idiots. You should go. It doesn't matter if the main people in your in the film are not going to be there. You should still be there. So he... Um, was texting us and saying like, um, you know, on January 6th, pretty early on, like, okay, you're not here today, but you need to be here tomorrow. And so on January 6th, then then the rest of us got on planes and um, went and connected with board and continued to report. And so we were in the, the Capitol office buildings, the congressional office buildings the day after, and people were, you know, really shaken, you know, from the Capitol police officers. You know, I remember speaking to to black officers who felt like they had been just bombarded with violence and racist abuse and were frankly flipped out. And they were saying to us, like, you know, the media was an, another target here. You know, you're the kind of people that are getting targeted by by the right wing extremists the congressional reps and we interviewed Republicans and Democrats, they were all deeply profoundly disturbed and and flipped out. And I think that that sense has um, diminished somewhat in time, but at that point they were all very, very disturbed. And, um, you know, the city was on lockdown. There was, they were bringing in troops. They were bringing in additional, um, representatives of different federal law enforcement agencies, all that sort of stuff. Well, I think one of the things that is interesting in the sort of the the last few months since then is sort of how they've watered down um, what happened on, on, on the right wing side. And also like they would be the first ones should any other group have attacked the Capitol to be calling for, you know, like capital punishment. You know, if a cop had died and it was Black Lives Matter there, there would have there would have been like, kill them all, you know, and I, I think it's like the sort of this watering down and diminishing how serious this was, um, you know, it happens so quickly now because of the news cycle. And, you know, it's like all of a sudden we're on to like, you know, uh, fucking techno ninjas or whatever, and they're cyber ninjas in Arizona, when it's like, all these guys are going to court now, you know, and it's like, I, I just can't even imagine the sentencing disparity that would be going on if this was like an armed black militia from Atlanta, you know, that had invaded the Capitol. And so I think there's been a lot sort of lost in the seriousness of this with all the, you know, the memes and the fucking around and like the, you know, the sort of watering down by, by certain politicians. And even the, the, the Democrats seem to have kind of like, yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, it happened. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's, it's, can you even like think about this in the history of the United States? When has the Capitol ever been invaded before? Ever? I believe than, there was one time in the exactly. 1800s. Yeah. And, and, you know, and what happened with that? You know, I mean, that did not end well for the insurrections. 
Right, right. I mean, a thing that's super interesting is so we were at a lot of those stop the steal protests leading up to January 6th, and we were in DC for the inauguration as well. We were in that whole scene throughout the fall um, with militia groups, with Boogaloo Boys, with Proud Boys, all these kind of people. And the rhetoric that we heard um, from them was the only way. Trump will lose is if there's massive fraud. We're worried that there will be massive electoral fraud. If there is massive electoral fraud, we will be in the streets and you should expect a civil war. And if you look at those groups, for the last five years, they've been talking about civil war and they viewed everything, any sort of uh, action taken to curb uh, the excesses of Donald Trump as um, treason and as a um, fifth column type insurrection. And they viewed this as a sort of ongoing low level civil war all along. And so they had been girding and planning for a violent confrontation with this state for a long time. And, and to be clear, like with um, the sort with the far right anti-government extremists, like that is baked into who they are. Like they believe at all times that they have to be poised for a conflict with the capital S state. And the, the thing that was different about Trump is that they saw him as sort of distinct from the federal government apparatus. They saw him as like a lone heroic character who in fact was also waging the same battle they were against an oppressive and a treacherous federal government. And so anytime when they saw the, um, the FBI or the ATF or any other government agency doing things that they thought undermined Trump, they wanted to, to make war on those government agencies. And then when they saw Trump fall from power, then it could turn to this full, now we are absolutely at war with, with the government sort of mentality. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, and yet they're the same ones that would support the troops. And we can talk about this or the, the, you know, the, the army reserves and the national guard going into areas of protest um, during the last summer for black lives matter, you know? And so it's interesting that the, the government's only oppressive when it's against their particular form of revolution. You know. Yeah, I mean, and, and look, there's a lot of that, you know, like, so, you know, when we were in D.C., there were um, customs and border protection agents everywhere. There were uh, army guard everywhere. There were all kinds of law enforcement and military folks everywhere. And uh, liberals applauded them and said, that's great. And then they had been very upset about the same things happening when the racial justice protests happened in the summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so I think you can, you can flip that either way, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, another thing that happened is, um, you know, you can raise questions about whether the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, the insurrectionist and rioter who was shot in the Capitol, whether that was an acceptable and appropriate yeah. shooting and I, I think in the same way, like if you are skeptical of um, police power and you're aware that uh, police do not always make the right decisions when it comes to using lethal force, that you should raise that question about 
her case as well as the, the case, many other cases, the typical cases that occur. And I'm not saying that I know that, that I have a strong feeling either way about whether that was an appropriate shooting. But I think like with the, the insurrection, like people uh, on people who have politics uh, left or right sort of gravitated to easy answers mm -hmm. and didn't sort of um, really think, think things through and go to first principles a lot of times, I'd right. say. Well, it's a big difference too with the insurrection because it had it almost like it could work, right? It had a crazy president that was basically cool with it. So it was different than like a protest against police brutality, right? Like it's an attack on the Capitol. Oh, I would say it was orders of magnitude different. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like there's a difference between there's a difference between being at an unruly and at times property destroying protest in an American city. And you can say like, Hey, it's prop, maybe it's not cool to set um, cars on fire and it's not cool to do this or that. And like, that's counterproductive to any sort of message that you want to get out there. Um, but it's orders of magnitude difference to say there is a mob of people at the Capitol and they believe that, the elected officials inside are engaged in treason. Mm -hmm. They they believe that those people are engaged in, in improperly usurping political power from the rightful leader, Donald Trump, and they intend to restore him to power by any means necessary, including, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, putting Mike Pence under the guillotine. Like that's a different, those orders of magnitude different. You know, like much, much different for but sure. I, th I think the 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 part about police brutality, though, and I think actually going into the sentencing stuff that I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I say sentencing disparity because I think that a black or brown person in the same situation would probably be getting a harsher sentence. I don't think that sentence should be doled out in either case. I mean, I'm not a believer in the system in terms of how we incarcerate people anyway. And I, I've had this argument with people about, you know, the, the George Floyd case where they're like, you know, basically like, you know, kill that guy, you know, put him in the gas chamber, you know, and I'm like, oh, but you're against the death penalty. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. I, 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 and it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's basically like kind of taking that lesser of two evils tactic to an extreme, you know, and I, I have a real problem with over sentencing in all cases. And I think the U S has a serious issue, you know, as you go, as you both know, I've been doing another show on this topic and I, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the same people that I talked to on the show going out and then saying, you know, lock him up forever. Like, it's like, I thought you were into rehabilitation and decarceration. Like what happened, you know? And, and I'm not saying, I think there's a level of responsibility that, that police should have that's higher than the general public on both ends, you know, and maybe if you there, if you're going to sentence somebody for killing a cop at a more extreme sentence, then if a cop kills a civilian, it should be that same sentence, but it needs to be fair. You know, and so I, I just think what your point is about, you know, people sort of they're 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 sort of complain complaining for convenience because it fits their narrative. And we we have a big problem with that. It's causing a lot of issues. I mean, just in. Yeah, in that's exactly that, that's exactly it. That's a that's a great uh, that's a great term. I'm going to steal it. Complaining for convenience, it's telling a story that fits their narrative. And and um, and I don't think it's I don't think 
people are, yeah, I think there's a lot of bad faith arguments out there and a lot of convenient arguments out there, you know, about these things on, um, and that like, like absolutely do not diminish like what happened. Like that was, it was an insane and, and horrendous, uh, thing. And I think we're just, we're really lucky that more people weren't killed. We're really lucky that we, the country wasn't cast into a sort of, um, more serious crisis of, um, legitimacy and a, a sort of a, a, uh, it could easily have been a, a situation where, um, even more people felt like, Oh, who is the president? Who is, who is running this place? Like, uh, what is the government? The government has no legitimacy here. We could have had a much worse situation. And, and I think, um, we're lucky to have alluded that. I think that thing I'll tell you guys that was so interesting to me during that time period is I remember um, talking to a friend who's a, a podcaster and after the presidential election, he said, oh, I'm so glad we got through the election. There was no violence and everything's going to be back to normal. And I said, you know, I, I said, I, I think that's a misapprehension. I, I said, if you look at what was happening in the streets in the months leading up to the election, there was a sustained and serious level of violence occurring in a lot of different American cities. Like in Olympia, Washington, there were protests outside the state house in which people were shot two weeks in a row. Yeah. You know, um, and like that is not a good thing. Not a good thing. Um, you know, the conflict between um far right groups and far left groups that has led to people getting killed and people getting shot in Portland. It's not a good thing. And there were, there was a lot of that sort of stuff happening. And if you weren't watching closely, you didn't see the pattern because this wasn't always happening in Washington, DC. In fact, most of it didn't happen in, in the biggest cities, but you could see, you know, from people, people storming the state house in Idaho to these, to uh, somebody getting shot at a protest in Denver, that these uh, there was just this level of um, really serious political violence that we hadn't seen in this country in quite some time. Well, and I think that, you know, that's a good call out as well. You know, we're, and also, I mean, we had a, a group trying to kidnap and kill the, <laughs> the governor of Michigan, you know, and I, I think one of the things that is really interesting about the, the, the capital situation is a lot of those more hardcore guys, did, they, they did stand down. They didn't show up there. And I think had they shown up like fully geared for war, we would have had a much different situation in that, in, in that. I mean, I, and I'm not going to, I'm also not going to water it down. I mean, it was serious and people got killed and, you know, and, but had a lot of the more hardcore one percenters showed up, it would have been a completely different ball game in there. I mean, those yeah. guys are, they're crazy. I mean, you know, and they don't have as much, um, you know, sort of empathy for human life that maybe, you know, they see things very clearly, like you're either an oppressor or you're not. And, you know, if you, if we think you're going to try to steal our freedoms or, you know, uh, or convinced you're going to undermine our sovereignty, you know, our personal sovereignty. And I want to actually kind of put a pin in that because I want to talk about how that plays into some of the crazy yoga crap I've been seeing. Um, but they're, they're going to go after you. 
and I, I, you know, the, the, the level of violence that broke out and it's interesting to me too. These are a lot of like very, um, you know, West coast white cities too, like Portland and Olympia, where there was like hardcore violence. It was like, you know, we want to talk about, you know, certain people want to talk about like racially motivated violence. I mean, it was like, you know, you hear all this black on black violence stuff, but it was white on white violence in a lot of these places, you know, and those were the people that were going to going to the mat, like for real with weapons and guns. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it's a good call out. And I think, you know, people need to really be careful about who they're backing on either side at this point. And I, you know, I've always been an anti-fascist, but I also know there's people in the mix on both sides that are there just for the chaos, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good point. It's definitely a good point. So, um, so you went out there on the seventh and I know I've seen the the documentary and it's for people that haven't, you know, it's, it's on, it's on PBS. You can get it, you can download it and stream it on PBS, uh, on the app. It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, it basically lays out what happened and kind of, you talk to some of the people that were shaken when they were still shaken, you know, out, out right after. And, um, uh, how was it like, you know, we touched on it, but how was it being in that city, you know, as a journalist and someone you've had pretty good access to kind of wherever you need to go. And if you haven't, you've gotten it somehow. And, and even in scary situations like Charlottesville, um, how was it to be in that city with such a huge military presence and the, the fences and the, you know, I mean, people seem terrified the days after that. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time. I mean, in that time period, to be clear, like we were, um, you know, we were going to all these sort of extremist events and we were going to all these stop the steel rallies. And um, one thing that stood out to me is, you know, having been at the previous stop the steel events in DC is that what you could see is that there was this massive resurgence of the proud boys and that the shout out that the proud boys had gotten from then president Trump during the first presidential debate had swelled their ranks, had given them a new life. And that in the past, they were sort of like, they were not the most important far-right kind of street organization, but they had like really achieved a new level of prominence um, during that time period. But what you also saw is while there were brawls and there were fights and there were stabbings at the earlier Stop the Steal events in D.C., the Metropolitan Police were actually quite effective at preventing wide-scale um, violence between the the MAGA crowd, the Proud Boys, and the locals, and the the leftists and the anti-fascists. So there's just like there was violence. People got hurt. People got stabbed, but it wasn't that aggressive. And what became really clear to us, um, myself and my fellow filmmakers and reporters is that this handoff on January 6th between the Metropolitan Police who were tasked with policing the broader city and the Capitol Police who were tasked with policing purely the the Capitol building and congressional offices that what you went from was having like a police force that is not perfect but has done did a much better job than many police forces in policing protest. They're kind of experts at it. They have a lot of protests. Like they were clearly much better than Berkeley PD have been at times, than Charlottesville PD, than Portland PD have been at times. And then you 
go over to the Capitol Police. And clearly, they are absolutely unprepared. They do not know. Uh, they have not taken any of this seriously. And so is that a conspiracy? So is is it just buffoonery and not a conspiracy that that they were ill-equipped that day? I mean, I think you know, there's still so much reporting and so much investigation going on about that. And like, why exactly? Yeah. Is this a confederacy of dunces or is this a conspiracy (laughs) of malevolent actors? And I think, I think in all likelihood, like what we will find is that it was like, um, really, uh, a major like failure to actually recognize what the intelligence signals are, what, what these reports that you're from your own intelligence unit you're getting, what they mean, what what it means that the FBI is telling you, what it means that what DHS is telling you, and to like not really get that. I think that's likely what we're gonna see. Yeah. But then you go through all that and you get to the other side, and it's like it's a city in lockdown. It's like war zone style city. It's um, you know, uh sandbags and um military vehicles in the streets and by the time you come to the inauguration there's huge chunks of the city that are just locked off and you can't get in there without going through a metal detector oh wow i didn't know that yeah oh yeah and our our hotel that we're staying at during this time period it's like um it goes from being maga people it's all maga people for a while then it's like journalists and then it's like journalist and national guard and we're and like everyone that's who's there and and that's who's in all the hotels throughout the city so yeah it was a pretty it was a pretty chilling and pretty gnarly um sort of way to live i think the thing that was concerning to me at that point it remains concerning right it's like you're not gonna see that much that many incidents where you have a huge group of people and they're gonna storm a building right and they may take prisoners, they may kill people, they may affect citizens' arrest. I just put up scare quotes. Um, you know, you're not going to see that that often. What's a more uh, American style of political violence is to assassinate somebody, is to blow them up, is to engage in a mass shooting. And, you know, there were bombs found uh, on January 6th um, near Congress, near, near office buildings. There, I think we still haven't seen the end of the violence from the people who believe, look, Trump should still be president. The whole election was a farce. The reason he's not president is because of a vast conspiracy. And it behooves me to take dramatic, violent action to restore this country to legitimacy. Like, I still am quite worried that we will see some sort of spectacular act of, of violence. Um, and that was the thing in those days that you were worried would happen. Like, you know, on January 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, you're worried, like, is somebody going to set off a bomb? Yeah. yeah. Well, now I'm terrified. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but I will ask, so without a, a leader in office who seems to be encouraging this kind of stuff, are we, we going to see the white supremacist numbers dwindle at all are they going to have more trouble recruiting i mean i would think about things in kind of a few different terms a few different like categories right like so if you you think about having your um resurgent white 
supremacist movement, which I would say is on the decline now. I would think about having like a, about the far right militia movement, which butts up against the white supremacist movement. I would think about um, the conspiracy theorists. And then I would think about like the sort of street fighting ultra nationalist, like the Proud Boys who also butt up against the white supremacist movement. And, you know, think about them as sort of, you can think of them as overlapping circles or a spectrum, whatever you want to do. With the white, the full on white power people, I think like they're on the decline. When you think about these other far right formations, um, they're also not what they were uh, at the beginning of the year. They have many of their members are in jail. Many of their members have been prosecuted. They are without the guy who was giving them direction in many ways, Donald Trump. But then also I think uh, a lot of them are not letting go of their core beliefs and the belief that um, America is effectively under siege, that America is over, that democracy has been thwarted. That is a very widely held mm-hmm. belief. And it goes beyond just those sort of yeah. more most radical factions. They're still sense. in that reality. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, no, no, no. 100%. 100%. Like that is, if you look at people who are running for political office on the Republican ticket throughout the country, like many of the leading candidates are people that are absolutely pushing the notion that the election was fraudulent. I mean, many of them. This is like a core belief in many sectors of Republican Party. Um, You know, the audit that they had that Kevin referenced earlier that was affected by cyber ninjas in Arizona. I was there when that was just released um, recently in Arizona. And there's lots of other states that are emulating that um, tactic to go back and look at 2020 vote and try to see if there was um, something untoward that happened. And that's an article of faith for many of these people that something did, that that there was something deeply corrupt about the election. And absolutely, many, many people still absolutely believe that. Like that hasn't, that belief has not waned. They are that, which they <laughs> seek. Do you know what I mean? Like they're the only thing hinky about this whole situation. It's, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm definitely not, I think it's ridiculous that they're saying there was widespread voter fraud. I don't think, though, that I think the underlying problems with our system are are much deeper than who votes and who doesn't and whose votes count. I think we've got a a major issue in how sort of the political structure works as a whole with two parties being the biggest problem. But, you know, I I think it's interesting. So sort of I put a pin in the self-sovereignty thing and the, you know, the personal sovereignty thing earlier because, what I've noticed more recently is, and I, you know, I noticed it last year, but it's happened. It's happening more now is this crossover. So you've got guys like Mickey Willis and um, Andy No, who are kind of disingenuous reporters, you know, that are really twisting what they're seeing to kind of cater to their, um, to their side of the, the political s- street, I guess. But I, I don't know. Do you know who Mickey Willis is, Adam? AC? No, I know Andy Ngo. Who's, yeah. who's Mickey Willis? So he's a he's kind of one of these guys that has floated in this like independent filmmaking world. 
Um, and he, he's worked on, you know, and he's also kind of crosses over into the wellness community. So he's one mm. of those guys that's like a very, uh, he's, it's M-I-K-K-I. Um, but he was at the insurrection live streaming and, and saying he was there only as a journalist. But yet he's like a renowned anti-vaxxer. He's got a new supplement coming out that will fight COVID, even though he said COVID was a pandemic. You know, oh, it was that dude. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know who yeah, I'm talking yeah. about. Um, so, you know, there's this huge crossover now when we talk about conspirituality or conspirituality, that's a podcast, um, conspiritualists and sort of their, um, the crossover between these like really like long-term wellness sort of lefty hippie types and, you know, the, the right wing side of it. And it's affected women a lot more, I think. And, you know, specifically white women, which is going to upset some of my, yoga and meditation friends that I say that, but it's really interesting to me that, um, you know, they've kind of like kind of the tentacles of this just keep growing in, in the weirdest of ways. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like Joe Rogan too, right? Like friends that were just cool and weird. And then all of a sudden through Rogan there. And I I think, I think AC, you've got a, a, you should have a pretty good perspective on this too, because you've been involved in, in, um, in martial arts for many years. And there's a lot of the dojos and the training centers now that like went full on, like anti-mask, anti-vax almost overnight. Like right. where I go with, with my kid is the, the guy's like super COVID restrictions, like no joke. You know, he's very practical. It's called practical martial arts. So, you know, but you know, and he's like, look, there's guys here that want to grapple maskless and I just have to tell him no, you know, sorry guys, we're going to do less grappling and more kickboxing for now, you know? And it's like, but it's like this, all this, these tentacles, like Joe Rogan is a great carrier, like Joshua mentioned of this, like yeah. really muddled message that crosses over into Trumpism. And, you know, I, I don't think people are taking a hard look when they say, do your research, like at where a lot of this stuff really comes from. And, you know, the thing that I find the most dangerous is this, like, you know, and it's in the news right now because of the Catholic church again, but where are all the save the children people on the, what's going on with the Catholic church right now? Mm. I mean, the Catholic church has been a, a cult for, you know, pedophilia for, for centuries now. And it's like, they're, they're worried about, you know, Hillary Clinton growing vampire teeth and sucking the blood out of children, you know, but this is spread into the wellness and and fitness communities like wildfire. Right. Right. so I, I guess my question, I'm, I'm sort of filibustering is, you know, what have you seen with, with these guys in this crossover? Because I'm, I'm noticing this new trend of like, you know, they're saying things, but then also they're selling the counter to that thing. Like Mickey Willis, like suddenly he's got a COVID cure, you know, I'm going to cure the next big pandemic. I mean, I think like what, what you just hit on is, is really important. And I think it's sort of overlooked. Um, and I, I should just say, you know, I was just at a big, um, anti-vax protest in Arizona and you could see the overlap because there's 3% militia guys there fully kitted out with AR-15s. There's super Trumpists there. There's kind of new age type characters there. And um, the default setting for a lot of people has become a lot of people who find themselves in the Trump sphere say, oh, well, uh, you know, Wearing a mask is something that, you know, beta cuck, 
um, liberals do, and I'm not a beta cuck liberal, so I'm not going to do it. Getting the vax is something that beta cuck liberals do, and I'm not going to do that. I'm a lion. I'm not a sheep. I'm a tough guy or a tough gal. And so that's where I'm at. This is a cultural thing. And it's, um, there's that, right? But then like, there's the people that you see out there where you get the crossover and they're saying like, I'm a vegan. I'm um, very concerned about my health. I spend a lot of time on the internet learning stuff. And um, I am scared of government overreach. And I'm scared of, uh, government mandates, and I'm scared of the history of um, this country being enthralled to large corporations and being enthralled to pharma corporations and being in uh, in love with um, a repressive go- with repressive government policies that led to tens of millions of people being locked up. And so you see this crossover um, between the people who culturally come from the MAGA world and and they just can't get behind the public health stuff because they associate it with, with liberals. And then you get to people that do not have those politics, but because of the experiences they've had and because of sort of the orientation they have towards whether it's wellness, whether it's sort of left politics, whether it's kind of anarcho politics, they're like, Oh, you know, um, this is all a corporate scam. This is a money-making opportunity for big pharma. Big pharma has sold us a lot of things that were not good for us. And I'm going to take vitamins and be healthy. And I have a really strong immune system and that's going to get me through this. And it's, it's kind of remarkable the way that that's um, happened. I mean, part of it is like, this is all incredibly traumatizing, right? Like it's incredibly disrupting. And like what people are seeing is they're looking for patterns, right? And they're saying like, Oh, these patterns where the government dictates to you what you can and can't do that is a sign of authoritarianism authoritarianism is not a good thing and they are absolutely right about that like when they look at that you say oh yeah that's very concerning um if you run a gym in america in many cities it's probably in great financial turmoil because Mm -hmm. it's been very hard to operate for many 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 months now if you run a restaurant it may be in great stress and so people see these things and the world has been turned upside down. The government saying, you know, if you want to come work in healthcare, you're going to get a, a vaccine or you're not going to have a job. The government's saying, like, you got to wear a mask or you can't do this. Government saying you can't, uh, you know, you can't have a mass church service where people are all um, singing and blowing their COVID germs on each other. And so these things are like understandably disruptive to people and they they set off their their sidey sets spidey sense and make people think like oh dude this is a moment of of tyranny and repression and like we have to fight back against it um and the problem is that things can be similar and not the same you know and i think that like distinction that like yes these are many elements of potentially creeping authoritarianism and then at the same time they are also the dramatic interventions necessary to uh, try to stave off um, more uh, fatalities due to this incredibly virulent disease that has just burst upon the world. And so it's easy to understand like why in all this you would have like folks with different political orientations getting freaked out. 
And in part, like the messaging in a time like this, like when, um, you know, the science is constantly evolving, people, the science, like COVID is not what we thought it was two years ago. We've learned so much about it. It's a deeply, like we have a much better understanding of it. And we get a different understanding of it every two months, you know? So the messaging from public health officials and from the government's not been consistent. It's changed and it's evolved and that's going to happen. But to people who are given to see things in a conspiratorial light, they're going to say like, oh, you know, you, you were lying to me back then when you said this, Dr. Fauci, clearly this was all a lie, you know? Yeah. Not, not like, not like your understanding of, of the disease and the epidemic have changed the pandemic, but like you were lying then and you're probably lying now. Yeah. You see, uh, we don't have a lot of time left and I just really want to say I'm in awe of how much empathy you're able to still kind of maintain. Yeah. I, I've just kind of lost it a while ago with the situation, but hearing you talk and it kind of brings back like, Oh yeah. Like everybody's just got their own kind of history and, you know, I might have been susceptible to some a lot of this stuff at one point in my life. Uh, so anyway, mad props for your empathy. Well, well, thank you. I, I should say two two things. Um, and, and one is like, you know, like I'm at this anti-vax event and I'm with other media people and we're wearing masks and people are coming up to us and they're saying awful things. And I'm with a reporter from local TV who says, I've been threatened with death three times today already. Mm -hmm. And so at that moment, I'm not a very empathetic person. I'm a very <laughs> fucking annoyed person, you know, <laughs> and people are telling me, you know, uh, you know, COVID is a, um, COVID is a common cold. You're yeah. just a wimp. You're a wuss. And I'm like, I'm saying like, no, COVID is an IQ test and you're failing it. You know, that's like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not super empathetic. I'm very <laughs> grumpy. Um, but also a thing that occurs to me, I'd love to know what you guys think of this is I worked in alternative media for 10 plus years. And my feeling was always like, Hey, like the more media that's out there, the more access people have to creating media, the more democratic it is then we'll be better off. People will have a broader array of opinions. Public policy debates will be smarter, deeper. New ideas that need to be in, in the discourse will enter the discourse. I was super helpful about that, hopeful about that. Now, with the advent of social media, podcasts, of everything else, everyone's a publisher. Mm -hmm. Every person in this country, in this world, basically, is a publisher. And the thing that's disheartening to me is like that awesome um world of robust and intelligent discourse and better public policy doesn't feel like it happened what happened what feels like we got was like a horrible facebook <laughs> dystopia so I, I, like it's weird like some days i'm like oh man maybe like maybe we went too far with that and i don't know that you can put that genie back in the bottle it feels like, like growing pains to me it feels like it feels like, I don't know, I'm so out of touch, but it feels like that maybe people are, are taking a second glance at that kind of stuff as they're more than they used to and pulling back a little bit from that stuff. But I don't know. I, I mean, I find what annoys me about this kind of constant posting is that, and I'm guilty of it, I've done it, 
on, especially on social media. I've kind of stayed away from it over recent months on social media because the other show has such a serious level of content. I need to be a more grounded, serious guy. And some, so I can't fuck around quite as much. Um, but I will say that what really annoys me is the, the, the fact that people that are calling other people stupid are not actually looking up any of the facts and stats that they're posting. You know, and I, like you said, you know, you're at times you're you're when you're at these events, you're not empathetic, you're grumpy about it. And I find myself before I would comment on it relentlessly, but then I realized, pe- you know, people are gonna they they one they're putting it up to get pick a fight. Two, they want to be in whatever level of ignorance they're in because of the confirmation bias they're getting around these certain stats and facts. And so, you know, I think that what needs to happen is responsible people need to take over sort of leading the charge on being more fact-based and doing deeper investigative research. And that's one of the things I've respected about your articles through the years and your work through the years is even back when you were working in at a smaller, you know, independent news organization in San Francisco and you were learning this trade, you were taking the time to really like gather facts before you published and then letting your editor look at it and, you know, making sure that stuff checked out. And I think we've lost a lot of that in journalism because of, you know, the fact that it's so readily accessible now that people are like, this is what I think. And, you know, a lot of it's based on charisma, you know, and that's a problem. So that's where I get kind of annoyed is this charisma based sort of like following that people get, you know, and you can see it, that guy that the Tim show or whatever on, on that used to work for vice is like a really Tim great Poole, example. Yeah. Of this. You know, he's, he's a really smart guy. He he's done a lot of great reporting in the past, but he's like, he's like our sources say like, he's doing things like real time, like Alex Jones, where some dude told him something and he's like, you know, this is, this could be real, but he leads people down a path that is ambiguous enough that he can pull back from it at any time. And I think that that lacks a lot of courage, quite honestly. And I think that lacks a lot of um, integrity in reporting. Um, and I think that him, like, I'm not comparing him to Alex Jones because he's on a totally other level than anyone else as far as his nonsense. Yeah. But um, I think it, it allows people to sort of be in this, like, you know, in like the media matters expose this with Fox, the some people say realm of things, you know, and I think that that's incredibly fucking dangerous, quite honestly. And I think it's irresponsible. And I am like, I've said this before, I'm willing to talk to any of these guys about it if they'll come on the show and talk about the responsibility that you have when you have such a huge platform. And that goes for celebrities, that goes for sports celebrities that goes for reporters that goes for people with influencer platforms you have an incredibly huge amount of responsibility to the people that are paying attention to you and if you don't think you do you know honestly go fuck yourself because if you lead someone down the wrong path you don't know what's going to happen and look what's coming out about facebook right now around body image and women you know and it's just really it's obscene to me so while I do want democratic media and I want people to be able to express their opinions and I love free speech, when you have a, when you cross that threshold into a larger platform, you better come fucking correct, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm saying that on both sides, whether it's MSNBC, ProPublica, which obviously I think you guys do a great job of really researching your facts and that a lot of times what I do now is I, I'll read an AP story and then watch it go to MSNBC and Fox and watch the the slant happen. 
you know? Right. right. And so, you know, I'm, that's just my very long winded opinion. I think there's a huge responsibility that's being missed when people are just throwing shit out there ambiguously. No, I think you're 100% right. And, and I'll, I'll tell you an, another piece of that, man, is like, I think part of what happens is like for someone like me, I like, I spent many, many years having every single thing I wrote go through a lawyer and that's still the case. Right. And I got really thoughtful about, well, how do I say things and be accurate and get all the facts right so that I, that process can be a little less painful, mm-hmm. you know, and like to, to know, like the, these are things that you cannot do and say in journalism because the lawyer will point out to you like, dude, you don't have the factual support for that. That's you're casting somebody in a false light. Like, you know, like, nail down, nail down the facts, say what you can say and don't go beyond it. And that was the training that, that I had. Um, and I think for a lot of people that operate in the social media sphere, including people with massive platforms is that they have largely been exempt from libel and defamation suits in a way that people that work in legacy media aren't. If I, if I libel somebody, if I defame them, I personally can be sued and my organization can be sued. And I, this has happened to people I've known um, where they've spent years of their lives tied up in, in courts and like faced losing everything. Um, that makes you a little more careful about the things that you say and making sure that you have that, that you are as accurate as possible. Yeah. Well, and everybody has a bias. I mean, I, you know, that's totally true, but it's how ha- you can, you can, sort of like get your bias out there with facts backing it up. And then that's, that's the kind of discussions I think we need to have, whether it's like right wing or left wing or somewhere in the middle, like have your opinion about these facts, please, you know, just use the facts. Don't, don't say there's alternative facts and all this other nonsense. Like, and that goes for some of my super lefty friends that just come out of nowhere with some old bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? You know, it's like, it goes for me too, like when I'm doing that. But, you know, I, I think Joshua was mentioned the time. I did want to bring up something a little more lighthearted because one other thing happened during the, between the last time that we talked and now, and that is our good friends of Vale got back together and started playing shows. And did you go to any of those? Yeah, yeah. So I went out to Richmond for those, to the Richmond, Virginia for those shows. And it was super fun and super great and great to see those guys. And honestly, like reminded me of, um, wow, being covered in other people's sweat. That was the last time (laughs) that happened. And it was really gross. And now in the COVID era, I'm like, oh, wow, that's so unsanitary. I don't know if that I'll ever do that again. Be close <laughs> to that many like sweaty humans breathing all over me. Yeah. But it was great. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's like, um, was really cool to see people from Kevin, from your generation and my generation from the punk scene and, and like catch up with them and see what they're doing now and all the different divergent roads people took. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that those shows were look like a high school reunion for for punk kids. I mean, for real, yeah. like so many of my friends went, and I I wanted to get out there, but I was there was like a bunch of stuff happening at home that was just made it impossible to travel during that time. Um, and but like I saw all the photos and the videos, and you know, Bo and I stay in contact, and I just had like 
mostly he just clowns me online, but you know, I mean, I just think it's like so amazing that they actually were able to like come together and do those shows. And it looked like it was just such a really amazing, you know, little run. And I don't know if they're going to do anything else. They were supposed to play punk rock bowling, but they canceled looked like from that. I think Bobo's living down in what Costa Costa Rica. Rica. Yeah. So, but I mean, I, you know, just like, it just seemed like such a great, you know, and there's certain bands where I'm like, Oh, why are they getting back together? (laughs) You know what I mean? But they look like they had an absolute blast. Like every one of them, even Joe. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think that's, I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, a lot of those guys, I, I saw Eric while I was making our last film, the drummer, and he's like, I think at the time, I was talking to him. He, he was in the process of writing 80 songs yeah, um, and playing with a bunch of different people and trying to record all these songs. And Tim is still very much doing his solo music. They're all kind of doing different things, but it um, was cool to see that. It was cool. Also, like there's this weird thing about Richmond. Like a lot of my friends from there, like I feel like half the punks became real estate agents and they're like the real estate agents that like wear all black to their appointments and like clown themselves. And then the other half of them ended up running restaurants or bars or something like that. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of teachers in that group too, actually. Yeah. A lot of teachers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know, I know uh, Adam from born against and, and well, Brian zero was living there for a while. And his his girlfriend, who's an old punk, is a, does real estate. From that's like her side hustle, real estate, you know. So right, right. You know, it's it's funny, but you know, I, we're we're about out of time. I just, you know, obviously we had a we covered a wide ranging amount of stuff, sort of all around around the same topic. I just wanted to make sure we threw in some punk roots stuff there at the end. But um, anything else you want to close with? I mean, what's your next? I know you were filming something. Um, I didn't get the full details because you were still writing and doing other stuff and I didn't you know yeah so we're making a new film looking at democracy in the aftermath of 2020 and what that'll look like and um sort of trying to understand you know where either party goes from this point and what um what election laws will look like what voting will look like good news what good news I hope oh always good news and whether people will actually believe in the authenticity and legitimacy of elections so yeah always happy stuff always good stuff (laughs) well i mean it's it needs to be covered and i think um again one of the things that i find interesting about your work is just the the depth in which you you know you kind of dive in and make sure that you got everything correct and you talk to a multitude of people maybe not all on the same side and mostly not on the same side which is i think one of the most important features of real journalism in my opinion is that you get you get people giving you you know, some information or feelings about stuff that don't agree with each other. Well, thank you. That's, yeah, it's definitely what we, what, what I'm trying to do. And um, it's sometimes, you know, the conversation like comes up, like, should we give this person a platform and is that a problem? And sometimes I think we make the wrong calls, but other times I think you viewers and, and readers need to hear from the people who actually are espousing these ideas and not through my version of those ideas, me filtering those individuals. Totally. Well, um, Joshua, did you have anything else before we close it up? No, this has been uh, fantastic to have you on again. Uh, Yeah. 
I uh, hope we can do this again. And next time it's like less exciting stuff has happened between uh, <laughs> episodes. I don't think, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, good old America is going to give us much of a rest over the next few years, but that's just my personal opinion. And I, I will keep recruiting you to do a podcast, AC. Um, that would be great. As be you know, great. when you're, when you're ready to to shift gears a little bit and, you know, uh, I'm always here. We're, I'm, I'm waiting. So uh, l- lying in wait over here. <laughs> Excellent. I, I already have some subject matter I want to talk to you about. <laughs> so cool, cool. we'll talk the next time. But um, thanks for 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 everybody being here. Mm-hmm. I uh, I'm really glad to be back doing this show. This is going to be our first episode of season five. Oh my god. Um, um, and we're ha- we have some really fun get. We actually had people reach out to us this year, um, which is really amazing. So. Um, yeah, look for our, we're going to have an interview with Kira, uh, bass player, formerly of Black Flag, and, you know, obviously the stuff she did with Mike Watt, so that's coming up, and Blake Schwarzenbach's coming back, talk about what it's like to be a musician in, in the COVID era, and what he's been doing, so we've got some good stuff coming, and and uh, I'm, I'm excited to be doing this. Joshua didn't think we had a podcast anymore, because we took such a long break, but, um, <laughs> um, you know. I, I'm, I had I'm to check to make sure the website was still up. I'm not letting him off the hook that easy. So um, <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on. And uh, thanks, everybody. Thank you.